Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Over the last several centuries, we've seen massive increase in the world's wealth. Thousands of people, billions of people lifted out of poverty. And during the same time, though, we've seen financial crises, bank panics, all sorts of headline issuing things that terrify us that, well, maybe the world's going to come to the end because uh, yet another panic is upon us. And yet we always seem to persevere. Uh, governments, though, tend to not want these things to happen. They tend not to get reelected if, uh, if everybody loses their money. So they justify ways to intervene. In 2000, 1914, we created the Federal Reserve System because of bank panics. Uh, in the 30s, John Maynard Keynes invented macroeconomics um, as a justification for governments intervening in the economy. And in recent years, we've seen uh, Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd-Frank, Dodd-Frank and all its glorious 2,000 pages. Yet, nobody that I know who seriously participates in the financial markets today believes that we've staved off the inevitable next financial crisis, despite all the regulation that's been put in place. So the question is, has growth occurred because of financial regulation or despite financial re regulation? Uh, with me to talk about this is a good, great old friend, Alex Pollack. Alex is a distinguished senior fellow at R Street Institute. Before that, he was with American Enterprise Institute. Uh, he was CEO of the uh, Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago. And uh, earlier in his career, and earlier in my career, he was head of the planning department at Continental Bank, where I worked for him in the, uh, in the 70s. And we've got lots of interesting stories to talk about that uh, experience. Alex has written a terrific book called Finance and Philosophy. And really what this show is about is a subtitle, Why We're Always Surprised. <laughs> and we are. Um, Alex, uh, tell us about uh, Finance and Philosophy. Why the title? The uh, title of the book is supposed to indicate the fascinating ideas uh, that are involved when we try to think about what financial reality is. And, and the notion is financial reality is different from physical reality. It's a reality that's made up of human behavior, uh, of the interaction of people's ideas, their expectations, their expectations of other people's expectations, uh, regulators' expectations of what people will do, people's expectations of what regulators will do in this uh, nice uh, phrase, uh, expectations of expectations. And because of this, the financial markets and, and, and economic behavior uh, is fundamentally not only unknown as to its future and where it's going, but the book argues is unknowable. That is to say, this very complex, recursive, reflexive, interactive um, uh, reality makes it so we can't really know what's going to happen. And no one can know this. Here is a key point. The, the regulators in whom politicians sometimes have so much faith and people in general seem to have an unusual and uh, an odd faith, don't know what's going to happen either. The very actions they, the very actions uh, central banks and governments are taking may be 
causing the problems, uh, but they don't know it because of this strange and fascinating character of financial and economic reality. Well, I, you know, I said at the outset that we're now here in 2018, soon to be 2019, and but I thought we'd solved everything with with Dodd Frank and the financial regulations, and we have we have the uh, Basel new and improved Basel agreements and things like that. Uh, are you saying that with all this uh, work by the governments to protect us from financial cycles and downturns, we may yet still have one? I think it's un. un- deniable that there will be more than one and a, and a series of them stretching off into the future. Now, if as long as we keep an entrepreneurial or an enterprising economy, which is the term I like the best, uh, and the rule of law and relatively free markets on, on average, uh, economic growth and the well-being of individuals uh, can continue. Uh, to get better and better, but they won't get better and better without cycles along the way. Uh, in the great line of Schumpeter, uh, the, what he calls capitalism, what I call the enterprising economy, makes ordinary people better and better off. It does this through a series of vicissitudes, he says, that is to say cycles uh, and problems. And you can't uh, stop them from coming it's uh, interesting to look back when the Federal Reserve was created in 1914, the controller of the currency announced that now that we have the Fed, financial crises are impossible because the Fed will make it so they can't happen. Well, that was a bad prediction as it turns out. Uh, In 1989, just to take one other example, after a a huge regulatory uh, act of Congress, FIREA, the Financial Institution Reform Enforcement and Recovery Act of 1989, the Secretary of the Treasury announced, this ensures that financial crises will never happen again. Uh, Of course they did. And after after each political overreaction to each financial crisis, uh, we have the announcement that this will never happen again, but it does. And one of the reasons it happens again is the very actions that are taken trying to make it not happen in the in the paradoxical ways of, uh, of financial markets. We've we've talked about this and that you know people sitting in the regulator's job are just people, and you know we're they're subject to the same distortions and the same perception or same um, prejudices as the rest of us are, and they have the same information that a lot of players in the markets have, particularly big hedge funds, and yet we have a lot of faith in the Federal Reserve to somehow control the economy, yet they've singularly un- been unable to do that for the last hundred years since its creation. What, what, you know, I, I, we have so much faith in the Fed, what, why, what, what's gone wrong here? There is no more foolish faith than faith in the Federal Reserve or any central bank. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, you know, in the book, I have a chapter called The Most Dangerous Financial Institution in the World. And that is the Federal Reserve. The reason uh, it's the most dangerous is because a fiat, in, a, in a fiat currency system, which is what we've got, that is to say money, which represents only credits on the books of the central bank, uh, also by, uh, by pieces of paper, <coughs> excuse me, floating around as currency, there's no check on what a central bank can do. And they can do things which are extremely damaging, such as set off the great inflation of the 1970s, which was hugely destructive. 
uh, and triggered the 1980s uh, collapses in various financial markets. They could set off a, a uh, asset price bubble, like a housing bubble, which they stoked in the early 2000s. Uh, they can uh, suppress the returns to savers, so they're basically robbing uh, savers as they've done in the last eight years uh, or so. Uh, they can suppress real wages through inflation, uh, making people poor all the time that the money uh, seems to be uh, uh, causing prices to go up. The, the real price of labor can be going down. So these are the, what a fiat currency central bank can do is really seriously dangerous. Uh, and the Federal Reserve is the most important Central bank. Well, let's 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 talk about what the Federal Reserve is and isn't. The Federal Reserve, in terms of its its organization, the human beings in the Federal Reserve, it's primarily made up of a couple thousand economists, PhDs from MIT, whatever, who build. They are said, and I think it, I think it's true. It is said that the Federal Reserve is the largest employer of PhD economists in the world as well as being the most dangerous financial institution in the world. These people are, are intelligent, well-educated. They've got lots of uh, money to spend on research and computers and data, but they have exactly no more knowledge about the financial future than anybody else uh, because of the nature of the financial future and its unknown ability or its radical uncertainty. So to think that they somehow know what will happen, they don't even know what the results of their own actions will be. There's always a lot of uh, guessing and uncertainty involved. Uh, and of course, uh, human frailty, even of the most competent and intelligent people. Well, most of these people have never been work have never worked in the capital markets. They've come straight out of PhD land to work in the Federal Reserve or one of the one of its branches, and they build these models. And I, there was an office created with Dodd Frank Office of Financial Research in the Treasury. I don't you remember that. I think I think they just shut it down, which in their wisdom they should have. And this was something written into Dodd Frank where. We were never going never to have another crisis because we were going to have very smart people in the Treasury, similar to the Federal Reserve, who were going to model the entire economy and know what the risks were here or there, and thereby be, being able to get ahead of it. And as one of the jobs I had for a while, was I was running transition for Trump before he was inaugurated. And one of my jobs was to go into the Treasury to talk about what they were doing. And I was talking with these guys in the Office of Financial Research, and they went on for a couple hours about doing this, that, and I said, well, gee, you know, if you know all this, why don't you guys go start a hedge fund and go make a lot of money? Because there's not a, uh, you know, you're saying you can predict all this, and yet uh, there's a market test to your predictions, and why don't you go out and make a few bets and see how you do? Of course, being academics, they didn't really like that suggestion, but but that's essentially what we're talking about with the Fed, right? They're, they're not really market participants or haven't been there in, in the real world betting their own money or their institution's money, have they? Uh, they have not, by and large, uh, although the, uh, the Federal Reserve, which uh, was, of course, at one point in its history on a gold standard, is now on what uh, James Grant wittily calls the PhD standard. It now has a chairman who actually was in financial markets. Oh yeah, Jay, uh, Jay Powell. Yeah, yeah Jay Powell. Uh, 
but people who are in financial markets don't know the future either. That's why they're, what they're doing is, is betting and wagering and trying to determine what are good prices uh, to pay uh, against an uncertain future. There's a funny story about the Office of Financial Research, uh, which is that one of my friends sat next to a senior officer on an airplane from the Office of Financial Research. Uh, and he said, you know, when I think about what you're doing, I, I noticed you haven't worked on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, who are at the center of the housing collapse. And wouldn't, wouldn't it make sense if you're trying to deal with systemic risk, at least to deal with them and talk about them and analyze them? And the guy said, oh, that'd be much too politically uh, explosive. We couldn't do that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, we, we, we're talking about the creation of these agencies doing these new things. Arnold Kling, who's a friend of ours, wrote uh, about the lessons from the savings alone meltdown from the 90s. Yes, I, cite, I cite this paper in, in the book. Why, to, uh, tell me about it. What did, he, what did he tell us that we'd done wrong then? He, he uh, wrote a wonderful paper, though, which is, it's called, uh, I think, Not What They Expected or, or Not What They Intended. Not what they intended. And, and what he relates is after the uh, uh, collapse of the savings and loans, which was the, the, the last time before the 2000s, only 20 years before the American mortgage system collapsed in the 1980s, the savings and loan based system. Only 20 years later, the, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac based housing system collapsed. So that's uh, two collapses in three decades. That's a pretty poor record when you think about it. Anyway, as Arnold's paper tells, after the 1980s collapse, the regulators sat down and very intelligently and carefully and thoughtfully studied uh, the problems and drew lessons from them and applied the lessons for what to do going forward. And they, and they had three uh, uh, main conclusions, which were you had to have a lot more securitization, you had to have mark-to-market uh, -market accounting, and you had to have risk-based capital. And every one of those things were main contributors to the next collapse uh, in 2007 to 2009. So the, the lessons they carefully and intelligently and plausibly, is really important. These, these are plausible ideas. They're not crazy. But they turn out to have been uh, main contributors to the, to the disaster. Well, it's, it's a great paper by. Well, let me let me let me expound on on that. More securitization means basically pay, taking a lot of securities and bundling them into a bond, and then then stripping off some of the risky parts of the bond and bundling those into yet another bond, and a and a resecuritization. And uh, so in the end, nobody knows what they own. Yes. Well. We, <laughs> They might think they know, but they don't actually know. Well, I remember we were at, we were at Allied Capital in 2003 or 2004, and we were buying uh, subordinated pieces of, of commercial mortgage-backed securities, and basically the riskiest part. And we held them on our balance sheet, which was okay because we didn't have much debt. I think 80 cents of debt for every dollar of equity, so it was a pretty strong balance sheet. And then one time, one day, the guy walked in from Wachovia, had almost, almost literally had a propeller head. He was a PhD type himself, but he was working at Wachovia or one of the banks. And it wasn't just one, there were several of them that came in and they said, we have figured out a way 
to bundle together all your riskiest securities and put those into a bond and then sell those off and you'll hold just a little piece of paper and you'll make a nice profit. Well, every banker made that decision. Uh, and that's where we ended up with all this, this paper out there where nobody understood what they owned. And then the rating agencies, I think they called those AAA securities, didn't they? The senior pieces were called triple A's, yes. <laughs> and the judgment. So when you when you tried to figure out as a as an investor or a rating agency uh, how much loss you might take in the most senior piece that got the triple A, you had to make guesses about the underlying loans and how they would behave. And how those and whether they would default. And if they defaulted, how big the losses uh, would be, probability of default and loss given default, as the lingo goes. But in order to do that, you had to make a guess about house prices. Oh, yeah. And there was this really interesting faith. And the faith was that house prices on a national average basis could not and would not go down. Well, now, why did people believe that? They said they believed it because in the whole post-war era, they never went down on a national average basis. So, so in these models, history started in 1945. History started after the they war. They more or less ignored what happened in the 30s. Absolutely. Well, that and was so long ago. It was, we oh. have a problem in general <laughs> thinking about finance of what is ancient history. Well, that's so long ago, it's ancient history, doesn't matter. And yet these things... Uh, we, 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 you, have a, you have a fascinating story in your, in your, in your fascinating <laughs> chapter in your book about generational finance about how long it takes for the next generation to learn the lessons that the previous generation learned. And it goes on and on and on because, you know, old bankers end up dead bankers and you get fresh faced young people in there that have never experienced the bad stuff. And so That's can't right. imagine it could ever happen. That's right. In the event though, how much did house prices drop in 2000? 27% on a national okay. average basis. Uh, and people who were professionals in the field, knew that house prices could go down. It wasn't that they thought house prices couldn't go down, but they thought they would go down only on a local or a regional basis, but that if you held a big geographically diversified national portfolio, it would average out. They knew they might go down on a real basis. That is to say that inflation uh, would go up by more than house prices. So house price could be falling in real terms, but they believed, or at least most people believed and said, in nominal terms, house prices can't fall. And then they fell 27%. By the way, you mentioned commercial real estate. That fell even more because there, were, there was a double real estate bubble, one bubble in housing and one bubble in commercial properties as well. And in both cases, they, the prices fell a lot. So one of the things I talk about in the book is a philosophical question. You could imagine Socrates buttonholing people on Wall Street instead of in Athens and saying to them, what is a price? What, what, is, <laughs> what is the price of an asset? And when you think about it, you realize there is no objective existence in a price. It's an ephemeral agreement. There's nothing physically real about it. Uh, and when we uh, realize that, we then come to another question, which is, how much can a price change? And the answer is, 
more than you think. <laughs> as we found go, in 2000. As we, as we found out. It can go up more than you think, and it can go down a lot more than you think. It can go down a lot more than your model says. It can go down a lot more than your worst-case scenario uh, projected. Yeah, well, th this gets at something you, the, you mentioned, the mark-to-market accounting. And this is something that was very fashionable among accountants, and it, it may be back in fashion for all I know. I haven't followed it recently. But essentially, you, you own an asset, and you paid something for it, and then times change and prices fluctuate, then the accountant said, well, if prices fluctuate, you need to mark it down, you need to mark it up. And in some theoretical way, that, that's useful. But then they implemented mark-to-market accounting. When, it, when, when did that start? I think in February, new, new ruling FAS 157, February 2007, where there was a radical change in, in marks. And what happened then was the S&P fell 50%. And it fell and fell and fell until the, 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 uh, the accounting mavens decided maybe that was a problem. And in Ma March of 2009, they reversed the rule. And the S&P has been rising ever since, or more or less ever since. So what's going on here? I mean, I interested in how what yeah, we're, we're getting into something arcane about accounting, but accounting really matters because it, it, you know, real things depend on that. You say, you know, what's your collateral for your loan? I'll say it's the house and you will say. It's the price of the house. It's the price of the house. So let, let's wander into this metaphysical world of price. Well, the price is, is metaphysical in this way and, and accounting is philosophically interesting. There's a whole chapter in the book about accounting and about what does it mean to represent reality in sets of accounting numbers. And as anybody who really studies accounting knows, it gets to be very theoretical. And a, and a set of books is, in fact, the result of all kinds of quite debatable philosophical decisions, which a committee, it's another committee yeah. of people, the Financial Accounting Standards Board has decided. And then based on those rules, uh, a whole lot of judgments that have to be made. So there's a really uh, interesting uh, question about representation and reality. It doesn't mean that you're not representing some aspect of reality, but you may be missing others. When you are forced to mark assets to market uh, and prices are fairly uh, stable and you're going along in a, in a normal economic situation. They go up a little, they go down a little. That's one thing. But when you're in a panic and there is no real price, there's only a distressed price, a fire sale price uh, that might be paid by a vulture investor, uh, then the mark to market becomes a really terrible idea. And if furthermore you have regulations uh, that declare uh, banks uh, insolvent, because of this mark-to-market accounting, uh, then you, you accentuate the panic. So like, um, like many other things, mark-to-market accounting is an idea which is okay sometimes and terrible in other times. Well, and you and I agree, let's be clear, this is not a morality tale of good people and bad people. This is That's a so important, Bill. That is hugely important. Thank you for yeah, because we joke about the Federal Reserve, we joke about the FASB. These are these are these are decent, smart people. They're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to 
fix things that they thought were broken. They come up with ideas, they implement the ideas, and uh, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's right. And, and in this case, uh, you know, what they wrote after the lessons from the 90s were, were catastrophically wrong. That's but right. they were not, they were not. Uh, no, this is really, really extremely important. This is not about bad intentions. This is about, yeah. about inevitable mistakes, inevitable mistakes when you're dealing with the financial and economic future. Now, look, it isn't true of all kinds of future because there are, there are things in the uh, universe that are quite knowable in advance, like the paths of the planets, which can be correctly known thousands of years in advance. And there are things that can't be known, like recursive, reflexive uh, market and economic Outcome. So what you have is not only fine people, but extremely intelligent, extremely well-educated people, backed by all kinds of other really smart people, but they often enough uh, get it wrong. And, and this brings up a favorite saying of mine that you know very well, Bill, which is, which I call Bottom's Principle, which Edward is- Bottom. Edward Bottom. Great man. Edward Bottom, an, all, an old boss of both of ours, uh, who said to me one day, Alex, it's easier to be brilliant than right. And it is so true. You can be very brilliant and not be right. And, and that applies to everybody. It applies to market actors, to regulators, to central bankers, to accountants, to politicians, and Bill, even to you and me. <laughs> 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 but you know, my, I, I, I keep extending that because brilliant, yeah, it's true. You can be brilliant, but not right, but you can be right. Often you can be right, but you can't get out of the way of, a, of an ongoing truck. And that's sort true. of happened to a lot of people in, in 2007, 2008. I mean, I think a lot of us knew that this was a house built on sand, uh, whatever the metaphor for example, you and I worked together at, Con or at Allied Capital, and we had the commercial mortgage-backed portfolio, which we sold in 2005 because we could see the prices and the collateralization levels deteriorating in a way that just didn't make it, didn't make it uh, a good asset to hold, and we could see a lot of risky stuff happening. And yet, even with that, you look at the accounting rules that later on afflicted everybody in, in finance. Uh, you know, we got it. We got hit by that truck. So it's it's uh, it's something to it's something to ponder as we worry about the future. You often can't get out of the way, but you can protect yourselves in, in ways. I suppose one of them personally is not owing any money. And absolutely, controlling your debt. Controlling your debt. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. But now look at what happens in the boom is exactly the opposite. What happens in the boom is you have every. Um, incentive, it seems, every short-term incentive to run yeah. up your debt. And that happens in the aggregate, in, in the market. That's why I, one of the uh, sayings in the book is increasing leverage uh, is the snake in the financial garden of Eden. The running up the leverage makes everything seem more profitable, makes asset prices go up higher. And, and, and in, the, in the boom phase, when the leverage is rising, everybody is happy. It's really uh, interesting, and we, we think about it in the book, who is made happy by a house price bubble? 
The answer is nearly everyone. Nearly everyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. Really <laughs> happy. Now, the only people who aren't, on, who aren't happy are the ones who've missed out, who haven't run up their debt, who haven't jumped into the bubble. And yeah. that's where I have this wonderful saying from Kindleberger, nothing is more upsetting to your psychological balance than, than to see your friend get rich. And then you say, well, what a sucker I am, I'm missing out. And then even the conservative people ultimately very often get sucked in about at the top. Uh, I do have and, one. And then you go on to say it's even worse when your brother-in-law is getting rich. Right. Yeah, yeah. Even worse than your friend is your brother-in-law getting rich. Right. And if you hear about it from your wife, that's <laughs> so you get, tend to get sucked in yeah. uh, at, at the top. And I, I do have a story here, you know, uh, it's about Isaac Newton. Well, now, Isaac Newton may have been uh, the greatest intellect in all of history. At least he's right at the top with a handful of, of the smartest men who ever lived. But Isaac Newton, in the bubble of his day, which was the South Sea bubble of 1720, was an early investor, doubled his money, sold out at a big profit, watched the market go straight up, experienced buyers, or I'm sorry, experienced sellers' remorse, probably watched other guys getting rich and became unhappy and bought back in right at the top. <laughs> the bubble collapsed and he lost a fortune. So here is a great case of Bottom's principle that it's easier to be brilliant, even world historically brilliant than right. And uh, Newton then later said in disgust, I can calculate the motions of the heavenly bodies, but not the madness of the people. And that's a nice summary of the problem. Yeah. Yeah, that is a nice summary. I asked the question at the outset, we've had this tremendous growth in the world economy, initially in the West, now throughout the world, billions of people getting lifted out of poverty. Um, but we've, we're talking about these cycles. And has this growth occurred because financial regulation has stepped in to make the economy safer? Or has the growth occurred despite the regulation that, that's been created? And you talk about that uh, in your chapter, you call it the Cincinnatian doctrine, which is pretty interesting. Cincinnati, Cincinnatus was the, uh, what, the Roman emperor or, or Greek emperor, Roman emperor who went no, home. He was a Roman, uh, he was a Roman aristocrat. Yeah. Who was, uh, as the story goes, on his farm uh, when Rome was in crisis and the barbarians were at the gate and they made him temporary dictator. The, the Romans had an office, which was a, a temporary dictatorship. And you, you came in and had absolute power, but it was limited to six months, renewable once for six months. And so Cincinnati came in, took over as dictator, drove off the barbarians, saved the state. He left the farm to save the state is the line. And when the crisis was over, he went back to his farm. Now, Cincinnati was the hero of George Washington who twice in his life left his farm, once as general to save the American Revolution, and once as president, as, as the most important president ever, because he created the office, and afterwards went back to his farm. And, oh, George Washington was called uh, the modern Cincinnati. So mm -hmm. the theory is, in the crisis, you get intervention. The trick is, like Cincinnati, how do you get the intervention to stop so that the uh, uh, enterprising economy can keep on 
creating wealth. And, and that it has. And then we go on, there's, a, there's another chapter called The Wonderful Trend of the Troublesome Cycle, in which I, uh, we ask the question, think of the truly astonishing improvement in the lives and the welfare of ordinary people, people like you and me, uh, over the long term, and just take since 1900, on average, Americans are eight times, eight times better off than the people, say, when my, when my grandfather was young in 1900. Well, this is astonishing, uh, astonishing progress. And it means in, in every way, in physical ways, in health, in culture, in, in intellectual uh, goods that are available to us, our lives are richer and better off because of this amazing trend. Now, what kind of a growth rate does it take to be eight times better off in 118 years? And the answer is 2% a year. So mm -hmm. the magic 2%, if accumulated over long periods of time, which an enterprising economy will do if it has entrepreneurs, if it has scientific advance, if the, if the knowledge is turned into innovation and into enterprises by entrepreneurs, most of whom will fail, but some of whom will build the amazing progress and the rule of law, uh, then this trend continues. So the, the book poses the question, can you have this trend without the cycles? And the answer I think is true is no, you can't. If you want the amazing trend, you have to have the cycles because the same uh, uh, fundamental force is playing that is uncertainty. Uh, invention, innovation, entrepreneurship creates uncertainty. Uncertainty creates cycles. So you get them together. So I, I speculate that if you were willing to be poor and live at the level, let's say, of a traditional peasant forever, you might have an economically and financially stable. Well, you know, you know, it strikes, strikes me as, as listening to you, we've got a market. If you think about financial crises, they're about, they're about money. And what, what is it about money? Well, everybody is involved in money. And so therefore everybody cares and sees it. And, but there's other markets, there are markets. Let me give you a ridiculous example. I was a baby banker in the seventies before I worked for you as a lender to the automobile and steel industries, and we had recreational vehicle uh, manufacturers okay. in northern Indiana, and they went through a cycle because of the oil prices and gasoline prices where they went from thriving to dying in two short years, and that was a cycle that affected only the RV, RV manufacturers, and it occurs They've to me again, government so. intervention then to, to, to bail out or re-regulate <laughs> recreational yeah. vehicles. So these cycles happen yeah. In real markets as well as financial markets, it's just yes. we don't see the government intervention that we see in financial markets. Yeah, the cycles are not only financial, they're financial and economic. And the, I want to swing towards the Cincinnatian doctrine because one of the contrasts you'd make here is that in Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith, he believed that if there's a lot of government intervention, and this was in 18 or 1776, over 200, almost 250 years ago, 
He said, government intervention into markets is particularly prone to creating monopolies and special privileges for politically favored groups. And we see that playing out today with Dodd-Frank. And Dodd-Frank has really put a moat around the big financial institutions where if you want to be an innovative finance person, because of the regulatory requirements and capital requirements, you really can't start anything new or be entrepreneurial. And so it's, it's protected these, these banks. True? I have a story. I, yes, I have a story. Absolutely. The, uh, the claim was that it would make so-called too big to fail uh, impossible, but it has reinforced uh, the biggest banks and, their, uh, and, the, and the correct view uh, that financial markets have that they that they are supported by the government will be and are just like uh, Fannie and Freddie uh, were and are uh, and uh, and will be. I have a story, Bill, to tell here, uh, which you may remember. It's what's the difference between banking and politics? And the answer is, banking is borrowing money from the public and lending it to your friends. And politics is taking money from the public and giving it to your friends. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and banking subject to political direction is borrowing money from the public. Yeah. And lending it to the friends of the politicians. Well, that's why yeah. government banks uh, inevitably fail. Well, we've seen that in Europe in particular, where the the banks are directed to own government bonds in, in large quantities. So they're in effect financing the, uh, the deficits of the European governments. But Will Smith goes on to say, and you quote it here, if we have these, these ossified uh, faction-driven rent-seeking institutions, what that means is that there's less new things happening, less innovation, less growth. And so it, it reduces the rate of wealth creation for everyone. And then on the other side, and this is a contrast we're seeing today, is that in Keynes, as I mentioned at the outset, invented macroeconomics as a justification for the European, or particularly the British government, to intervene in the markets in the 30s. And they said only the compact power of the state with its sovereign authority to compel can, uh, can, can deal with emergency situations. So, and you ask an interesting question, which one of these views is right? <laughs> And I give the answer, as you know, <laughs> which is that Smith is right 90% of the time and James is right 10% of the time when we're in the crisis, which is about once every 10 years. Uh, but the driving force in the long term is Smith. And the surviving the crisis is, is Keynes. Speaking of Keynes, of course, uh, there are uh, there is a great story in the book, which if, if you don't mind, I will tell about Keynes' 19... 30 essay in which he tries to predict uh, what economic life will be a hundred years from then. So in 1930, he's writing about 2030, not far off. And, and here, imagine 1930, the world is in depression. The world has had the incredible destruction of the First World War, followed by a lot of chaos, including economic chaos that comes from the war, and then financial collapse. Everybody is, is depressed and, uh, and in despair. And Keynes writes an article and says, well, in 100 years, uh, our, dis our uh, descendants then will be four to eight times economically better off than we are now. This is a great forecast. 
and, and we're already in terms of uh, average economic well-being, which we'll measure by gross domestic product per capita, only per capita matters mm -hmm. for this purpose. We're already uh, seven times better off than the people in 1930. So his call is all already right. And then he goes on to say, in this very uh, sarcastic way, he hopes that in the future, economists will be humble, competent people like dentists. <laughs> <laughs> and Keynes of, Keynes, of course, is not humble. He's an incredibly arrogant, intellectual elitist. Uh, and he's, he's saying this in a supercilious, arrogant way, like dentists. Uh, and then I point out in the book, now let's compare the progress of dentistry since 1930 with the progress of economics. Now what we find out is that dentistry, since it's actually based on science, uh, has incredible progress in science and practice to, to the benefit of mankind to have good teeth. And it's really admirable and has much more progress than economics has had. And in fact, my conclusion is, you mentioned Keynes as inventor of macroeconomics. Macroeconomics will never rise to the scientific level of dentistry. That's my response to Keynes. Well, and just a bit of a, an addendum to that, people, when people say they long for the old days. Uh, my two-word answer to that is, uh, have you thought about modern dentistry? <laughs> that you're absolutely right. <laughs> Absolutely right. Alex, we've, we've just barely skimmed the surface of this book. We've been talking for decades about you writing this book, and one of the attributes you have is you're, you're an elegant writer with great simplicity and style and can make uh, complex things interesting and lucid. And consequently, we have a book here that's only 160 pages roughly, and it probably packs more into this 160 pages than dozens of books on, on similar topics. Um, you know, this is, this is an achievement that uh, um, I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just flat floored, flabbergasted that it's, it's as good as it is. I'm not surprised, but this is, uh, there's a lot here. Uh, the book is called again, Finance and Philosophy, Why We're Always Surprised. And for those of you on YouTube, I'm, I'm holding it up here so you can take notes and, get on to Amazon as quickly as possible and order this book. Uh, Alex, uh, where, where can people reach you if they want to talk about this with you uh, some more? I would be delighted to hear from anybody who's interested in these ideas and would want to talk about them, and I'd be happy to get emails. I am at the R Street Institute in Washington, D.C. The email is apollock at rstreet.org. That is A-P-O-L-L-O-C-K at the letter R, the word street, S-T-R-E-E-T dot O-R-G. And uh, it would be great to, uh, great to hear from anybody uh, these ideas, I think, uh, that are embedded uh, in, in finance and uh, economics are, are wonderfully complex and interesting and paradoxical uh, and fun as well as extremely important to think about. And we will have all this information on our website as well. And so Alex, is, is always fascinating talking with you, and I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you very much, Bill. Thank you for all your kind comments yeah. and for yeah. having me on. It's a great book. 
Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to amazon.com slash apply. That's amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.